0: back to franklin covey's podcast on leadership with scott miller that's me i am privileged now to still be serving as your host after 300 episodes we're in our fifth year where twice a week on tuesdays and fridays i have the enormous privilege to sit in this chair until they take me out of the chair and interview some of the world's most fascinating leaders people that are best-selling authors and business titans and researchers and authors and keynote speakers people that are perhaps household names because they are celebrities or movie stars or CEOs of big companies, or in many cases, people that have worked tirelessly for years doing deep research on on behaviors and practices and mindsets that improve all of our abilities to become better leaders, formal leaders inside organizations and even informal leaders inside our families. I'm delighted today to invite a guest that was one of only a few Guest on the other podcast that I host for Franklin Covey called C Suite Conversations, where each week I interview an individual from the C Suite. And we've invited Terry to come today as the author of the book Boundary Boss. Um, Terry Cole is a renowned psychotherapist, leadership coach, expert on relationships and boundaries. Her book I found so riveting, we cho- chose to have her on both podcasts. It's called Boundary Boss. The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. Terry, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Why, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, Delighted to have you here. You know, this topic is of of, of enormous interest to me personally, mainly because those that know me know that I lack boundaries. I lack setting them. I lack honoring them. I generally am evolving to better appreciate the role boundaries play in all of our relationships, especially in 2023 in the workplace where boundaries have become enormously important for safe work environments, respecting leaders and your team members, recruiting and retaining talent, and making sure that you establish and build a high-trust culture. And so today, what I'd like to do is probably even share some vulnerable stories around my own struggle with boundary setting and boundary respecting, not to license bad behavior, but all of us are on a journey to to, the more we know, the better we do. So, before we get into the book, Terry, will you talk a little bit about your history as a psychotherapist and your role in helping people improve their relationships and empowerment? Reorient all of our guests and listeners to your journey prior to becoming an author of this most recent book.
1: Well, I've been a psychotherapist for 25 years. And I actually had a career in entertainment before I was a psychotherapist. I was representing, I was a talent agent representing supermodels and celebrities, negotiating contracts. And as my own um, mental wellness and my own skills around boundaries got better and better, I realized that probably entertainment was not the place that I needed to be. I became very, very interested in helping others um, become more masterful boundaries, relationships, communication, um, healthy leadership, um, modeling behavior, all of this stuff that in the entertainment business I was not experiencing and it's almost like I became too healthy to stay there. So I actually quit my job in my early 30s, went to NYU, got my master's and opened up a private practice and that was the beginning of this journey of me being a mental health professional. Um, But so much of it had to do with what was lacking in my own life, as you just shared, Scott, like it was I was a boundary disaster, which is why this was the topic for my first book, because through the therapeutic process and deeper understanding of self, I became a boundary master. And then once I opened a private practice, I was like, wow, nobody knows what boundaries are. I saw the same Problems. No matter what the presenting problem was that the person coming into my therapy office was talking about, I could just connect those dot ba- dots backwards to lack of this incredibly important skill set. So I became super lit up about sharing and creating strategies and tools that people could do in their lives. Like they didn't have to be in therapy for thirty years, right? There's there's a way to present this material as accessible and actionable, so that really all you need is the desire to change, and you just gotta be coachable, and that's what this book is.
0: Terry, I'm gonna take some liberties and be a bit selfish and talk about myself and have you coach me through some of my own issues with boundaries, because I don't think it's that unique. I actually think in my selfishness, it will come out as selflessness, I hope, to those that are listening to our, our, our viewers and listeners, you know, to the extent my story is your story, great. And extrapolate from the wise guest today what relates to your life. We all behave the way we do for reasons. Whether it was our upbringing, whether it was our, to quote Dr. Covey, our private victory or our lack of private victory before public victory. And I have never been someone that even knew what boundaries were up until maybe the last five or six years. When someone that worked for me set boundaries, I usually subconsciously labeled them as strict, inflexible, lazy, or this isn't gonna work. Because I built my entire career on having no boundaries. I'll do whatever my boss asks. I'll, do, I'll go wherever, fly to South Africa tomorrow at two o'clock, I'll go today at two o'clock. Bring 18 pieces of luggage, of course. I'll carry them all on my back. I would do anything it took to make sure that my career succeeded. I was promotable. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing it was grounded in a fear or lack of confidence in my skill set, because I was willing to do anything for anyone at any time. And in some cases, I'm sure that was abused. In other Mm -hmm. cases, it actually worked well for me and built an amazing career. So I don't mean to say that that was all bad, but I'm guessing my lack of boundaries for myself was rooted in some childhood experiences. You open your book, chapter one, you call it From Boundary Disaster to Boundary Master. You have a very funny story about bridesmaids and bridesmaids dresses. Will you both fix me and tell that story kind of interchangeably how they are related? Because we all have a respect or lack of respect for boundaries, I'm sure based on our upbringing and our own lack of or maybe um, excessive even confidence.
1: Okay, so yes, um, I will definitely fix you because who needs more than whatever minutes we have to fix a lifelong ingrained pattern, not a problem. Um, I will briefly tell the story that opens the book, which is that I was a bridesmaid eight times in my 20s and I should have said no to at least half of those ugly dress experiences, as I call them, because you're not wearing the dress again, you're never dyeing it black, you're not making it shorter, like literally it, no, those fuchsia dresses are, they will be in the back of your closet forever until you throw them out. So the question is why? And it's similar to Scott, what you were saying about doing what anyone asked you. I prioritized, when you have disordered boundaries, I was prioritizing how that bride to felt over how I felt. That person thought we were best friends. That person was like, how could I get married without you? And instead of telling the truth, which is that I didn't feel that close with that person, if I had had a housewarming party, that person probably would be number 75 on the list of invitees. I didn't say that though, because I felt like I was being ungrateful. Isn't it an honor to be in someone's wedding? How could I say no? Uh, we were raised and praised, women in particular, for being self-abandoning codependents. Without a doubt, it would have been considered rude to say no. And yet, if I was asked now, I would say no. So back to what you're saying about your career with saying yes all the time and doing the thing and sort of doing it yourself, being you know this hyper-independence that you were describing, you know, Something can be dysfunctional or disordered and also be adaptive, right? So what you're saying is that potentially your willingness to do whatever it took to get the job done was not a bad thing for your career, right? So that it doesn't have to be, those things can coexist. It can still be dysfunctional. You could still choose. Scott, you could still choose to go to Africa today, to South Africa today, right? Or tomorrow, let's say. You could still choose to say yes to that. But there's a way to do that mindfully, not reactively. And that's the part that we want to talk about. You could still choose. You could still say, for for my job, for this position, for this person to see me as capable as I am, and they want me to do something tomorrow, I'm doing that. That could be a choice. But... The thing with disordered boundaries is a lot of times these are unconscious behaviors. We are saying yes out of a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, a fear of confrontation. It's more of an ingrained pattern, let's say, than a conscious choice. And there's nothing wrong with deciding mindfully that you want to do whatever it takes to get the job done, as long as it's a mindful choice and you don't feel resentful about it or you don't get completely burned out from doing it that way.
0: Yeah, Terry, this, this, this interview is extremely timely for me, for those viewers and listeners that follow me on social media, of which many do. They'll know that in the last year, my father passed at, in the mid eighties and my mother survived him and as of recent, we've had to move her out of her 60 year home. She had a fall and broke a leg, she's fine. But she's in her mid-80s mid as well. We've moved her into a lovely assisted care facility, and she is safe and she's happy, and it's going to work out well. As a result of that, we had this large home with 60 years worth of stuff to unwind, including 12 storage units, different therapy session. But in the last couple of months, I have been going through thousands of postcards and letters, letters from my father to his mother and, you know... Um, photo albums. And it's been a very emotional journey to remember my childhood, which by all means was very healthy and safe compared to most. But I'm starting to realize how many of my behaviors as a leader, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a human, are obviously deeply rooted in my upbringing and my parents' fears. And and it's just been an interesting journey for me. And then I read page 53 of your book, which by the way, in my opinion, is worth buying the book. I won't quiz you I'm gonna read it to you. You actually talk about the components of being what you call a high-functioning codependent. These are terms that I've heard, but I've never used to describe myself or others. High-functioning codependents feel responsible for the choices, outcomes, and feelings of other people. Check. High-functioning codependents feel like when something bad is happening to someone else, it's happening to you. Check. Feel a need to be needed By others, oh, triple check. Forgo your own needs for the wants and sakes of others. Oh, quadruple check. Draw your sense of self-worth and identity from helping others. Check to the 10th power. Need to be a part of the solution to someone else's problems. Do more than you're asked to do. Check, check, check. Do things for others so that they, do things for others that they can and should be doing for themselves. Say yes when you say no. Cover, on and on and on. Holy crap, Mm -hmm. Doc. I mean, I'm about the classic case for a high-functioning codependent. I mean, and other things, you know, harbor feelings of resentment or bitterness from... I can't keep going. Um, Fix me.
1: Let's talk about high-functioning codependency, though, because this is what is interesting that you, of all the concepts in the book, and there's plenty, that this one spoke to you and that you pulled it out because that I'm writing my next book right now. And it's actually on high functioning codependency, which is a phrase that I actually originated and coined because my very highly capable clientele, I would describe to them, they would be telling me a situation with a a relationship or work situation, whatever. And I would say, hey, I'm seeing a codependent aspect of this behavioral pattern. Let's talk about it. The moment I would mention codependency, they would be like, no, not me. I'm not dependent on squat. Everyone is dependent on me. I'm making all the dough. I'm making all the decisions. It's me, me, me. I'm the rock. So what are you talking about? I'm not codependent. And I realized that they were stuck in the old sort of melody, baby, codependent, no more. You have to be involved with an addict thoughts about codependency Mm -hmm. and that's not that was never my own flavor of codependency because i'm a recovering codependent myself and that's not what i saw in my practice and so i renamed what i view witnessed for 25 years high functioning codependency and the moment i did my clients were able to go i see myself you're right that is me and that is a really important piece of what you're describing because I can't imagine you identifying as codependent if the high-functioning part were not in front of it, correct?
0: Oh, indeed. I have learned so much about my leadership style, my, my style being married to my wife, my style with my children, with my parents, from your book. I think your book is an extraordinary leadership book, in fact, called Boss Boundary. Uh, Terry, why did you choose to take your decades of experience as a psychotherapist and talk specifically about boundaries as leaders, the boundaries you set, the boundaries you respect, the boundaries you cross. Why did you choose that to be your focus of research in this book?
1: Because with leadership, there's, if you don't have your boundary stuff together, if you don't understand boundaries, if you don't empower people to be self-determined right? You're, you're not doing them a favor. It's not good leadership. If you have your employees dependent on you, if you're micromanaging, all of these are leadership considerations. So it's something that you really have to understand yourself, what you're doing. Because a lot of times, if we are, haven't had an intervention, a therapeutic intervention, some kind of intervention, we could be playing out unresolved, situations, right? Unresolved, I would call them injuries from childhood in work. It's not like we only do that in our personal relationships, right? So the awareness of looking at, am I being proactive in the way that I lead? Does everyone know what is expected of them? Do we have onboarding policies that set people up to succeed? Do I let people know what is the best way to get in touch with me and how long it's gonna be before I get back to them? All of these are aspects of boundaries and all of these are aspects of leadership.
0: Terry, one of my most profound days in my 25 year career here at Franklin Covey, the world's most trusted leadership company, right? Was mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my, the now CEO, Paul Walker, uh, a man of remarkable talent and character and, and such a great leader in our organization, used to report to me, We've had, a, we've had a very healthy and complicated sort of big brother, younger brother relationship for 25 years, right? He reported mm-hmm. to me, and now he's very much my leader in the company, an interesting shift in influence and power. And when Paul became the COO of the company prior to becoming the CEO, I was the CMO, and he was promoted up to by peer level and then over me and then to become, of course, the CEO of the company. And I was serving as CMO, and he asked me some question one day, and I said, I can't possibly do that. I said, Paul, I have like eight people in line outside of my office. Literally, there are eight people standing in line waiting for their term to come in to meet with me. And he said to me, well, why are there eight people outside of your office? And I took it as a badge of honor. Well, they need me. I mean, they need me to sign off on this. They need my expertise. And what he was trying to tell me is, no, you're not getting it. Scott, you've created such a dependency on you, whether it's for your... Own self-worth or your self-confidence or your self-esteem you've built this like I am the Sun and now you are overwhelmed and so be careful what you wish for and he was trying to give me some coaching there should be no one standing in line outside of your office it was a big epiphany for me it took me a few decades to understand that one what would you say to leaders that are codependent in their personal life that I maybe brought that into their leadership life and they're feeling overwhelmed they're feeling like their team isn't empowered. What are some things they should do to self-assess their own behavior and move out of that so that their teams are liberated, empowered? You're an expert in this. Walk us through this.
1: Well, part of it is you, you have to do an inventory yourself of your own experience. So in the book, I give you a downloaded blueprint, a downloaded boundary blueprint, where you can do a little bit of a deep dive into the way that you relate to boundaries right now, right? It's not enough to just say, oh, I think I have disordered boundaries. It's, we need to have a deeper understanding of why, because there's many good reasons why all of us have disordered boundaries, but it creates the ability to have self-compassion and a deeper understanding when we go, oh, so it could be did I see, my, does my mother have very porous or malleable boundaries? Did I see that as a way that I should be because I'm a woman and she was my you know role model? You know, there's lots of different reasons why we are the way we are. So I feel like with someone in a leadership position, there, there's a couple of things. Start with your own downloaded blueprint, which you can get in the book and I also share online. And then you want to move into what are the problem areas with your team? What are your complaints about your team? Who is not doing what, where do you feel resentful where you have to step in, even though you set it up that way, but this is how we'll use this as a GPS. You're going to do some kind of an, an inventory of what needs your attention. And you can always know this by checking in with really doing a resentment inventory either an overwhelm inventory or a resentment inventory, because you know what the problems are. You know what's not working like a well-oiled machine. And somewhere down deep, you know it can be. So we just start next right action and then the next right action, where you look and go, okay, I'm now signing off on everything that Bob does. Is that necessary? What if I only sign off once a week on things? Or what if I give Bob some autonomy to make decisions. And then we can meet every week about what he decided. Like there's all these different ways of being a better delegator. But we all know when it comes to leadership that if you micromanage, this is a glass ceiling of your own creation, right? You will only ever get so far because a great leader does not micromanage. You need that brain and that bandwidth for these breakthrough ideas that great leaders have and implement and share and inspire. So you you can't be, right, you can't run the whole place and be sweeping the floor. It's not possible.
0: It's so beautifully said, a um, resentment inventory, man, do I need that? And when you said that, I thought about my wife, Stephanie, who is just, you know, the full package, mother of three and well educated and, insanely attractive and kind and hardworking. And I realized that I resent Stephanie for her hour in the Peloton when I wish she was doing something else that I valued, but I also love the way she looks (laughs) from her hour in the Peloton. And I need to do a much better job of my resentment inventory. You've also developed a, a, um, a corollary workbook that goes along with this. Speak to that, Terry.
1: Yes, and actually, the workbook comes out the end of October, um, and it, the truth is, it's also it's it's really a standalone workbook. So, if if you've read the book, amazing, great, but nothing is we we I I purposefully created all new um, exercises and material for the workbook because I wanted it to add value to those people who loved the book and really were were grateful to have it. And this is a way for a lot of people learn differently, right? I find that there are people who really love workbook style of uh, learning. And it's not just a lot of workbooks are like, here's 75 lines and like 44 journal prompts. It's not that kind of workbook. There's all different ways of testing your knowledge about boundaries. There's like boundary bingo. There's there's a whole, and yes certainly there is journaling as well but it's not a journal it actually is a workbook that will teach you how to create really really good scripts around boundaries like there's a big part of this that I, I went with what does my audience actually want and even though there's an entire chapter of scripts in Boundary Boss the book itself people still wanted more and so there's a lot of um, script building in the workbook terry uh,
0: as evidenced by the set i've read a few books and one of my favorite leadership books is liz wiseman's book multipliers Uh, a peer gave it to me once to validate some pain i was having with another leader in the organization and they gave me as a coping mechanism (laughs) and when i read it i said oh my gosh no this is me forget that other person i'm frustrated with i really had this self-awareness and this self-reflection on Liz's book, I highly recommend Liz Wiseman's book. I think in many ways your book is the same. I don't know that mm-hmm. as leaders in organizations, we take the time to understand why. Why we're dealing with this, why we're focused on that, why we're treating it. Yeah. it's rooted in our, in our behavior. I highly recommend to anybody listening and watching today, if you're a leader of people, if you own your own company, if you're looking to become a leader of people, this book is an extraordinary manual to help you get on top of some of the subconscious reasons why you are behaving the way you are. I especially enjoyed the section about manipulation tactics. I want to just pitch a couple Mm. of them to you, and we'll talk about um, advice giving and feedback. You talk a little bit about gaslighting and riff on that.
1: Well, gaslighting, this is a term that's been around for a long time, originated with, you know, there was a movie many years ago. And what is gaslighting? It is a very popular manipulation technique that we we mostly associate it with narcissists, um, where they're destabilizing their victim, where they are denying your lived experience, where they are saying, you never said that. So it's a way to maintain Uh, to grab and maintain control over someone in a relationship. And this can happen. It doesn't have to just be romantic relationships or familial relationships. You know, gaslighting can also happen if you have a toxic employee at work, where, I mean, with gaslighting, it could also come right down to bold-faced lying about something.
0: Talk about love bombing.
1: Sure. Again, love bombing, a manipulation technique, we, we associate a lot with um, unhealthy romantic relationships and narcissists a lot of times, where it's, it's the beginning of a relationship where it's fast and furious. If someone is love bombing, and they may be doing it intentionally, maybe they know, maybe they're, they're really cognizant of their manipulation tactics, and maybe they don't. But what it is, is fast and furious you know, you're on date three and they're talking about, do you wanna go to a wedding with me in nine months? They're like, we should move in together. What should we name our kids? It's a lot of times it's like, (laughs) sex is amazing. um, Romance is amazing, huge gestures, right? So again, it's almost like the love version and I'm putting love in quotes of like shock and awe because it's very destabilizing. I can't tell you how many clients have said to me, therapy clients, I mean, it's so amazing. It just, it seems like a fantasy. It almost seems too good to be true. And of course, as a therapist, I'm all like, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Why not pump the brakes a little? Hey, if this is the real deal, this will be the real deal in two months from now. You don't need to be moving in with this person on week three, but it's a manipulation technique because it's literally someone shocking and awing you into their love web of dopamine and good feelings, but it doesn't last. If it's actually love bombing, it doesn't last. And then it's going to move into devaluing and um, discarding.
0: Okay. We have a problem. My wife listens to all these podcasts
1: and I'm very concerned
0: about the stability and longevity of my marriage as a result of Stephanie deciding to read this book and expose me as the fraud that I am. (laughs) Um, Hopefully our listeners and viewers are laughing right now. Uh, (laughs) Terry, uh, how does someone become better? Someone like me that hopefully you know, has good intentions. My, mm-hmm. my, my, I don't wake up in the morning trying to manipulate my wife or fatigue my team members or love bomb or gaslight. I do all of that because I'm a human being and not yet in therapy. Would you um, mm-hmm. give us some advice on, as leaders, how do we set and respect boundaries better starting now?
1: Well, part of it is, as leaders, be interested in what your employees are experiencing. Do anonymous surveys so people can tell the truth about the environment, about what's working, about what's not working. And that takes courage to be willing. And it's got to be anonymous or they're not going to tell the truth. So, But that's one idea, is getting feedback from the people who are actually living it. You're going to do your own resentment inventory because that's the beginning of where you probably need boundaries. And you're going to ask other people their experience. What, what what could I be doing better? Talk about it in your personal relationships. Ask people. And I think that it goes both ways, right? If you're someone who's saying yes when you really want to say no or you're, or you're over-functioning or as you really heavily identified as a high-functioning codependent, you really need to look at where are you bleeding energy? Where do you have energy leaks in your life? Where are you doing things for others that they can and should be doing for themselves? Because here's, here's the what we lose when we continue to have disordered boundaries, especially in the high functioning codependency way, is that we're constantly inserting ourselves in the middle of someone else's problem because someone else being in pain is very distressing to us. We want to fix. We want to advise, we want to auto advise, right? Someone doesn't even have to ask us and we're already giving them our opinion. And one of the most um, helpful things that you can learn to do is A, really understand that you actually do not know what everyone else should be doing. And I'm not talking about this in a leadership way. I'm talking about your personal relationships. Um, But it's very important that we teach and value you know, critical thinking and problem solving and that we give the people who work for us and the people in our lives, we let them be sovereign in some way so that they are thinkers, right? Isn't this what we want in our teams? So I think to be better is to take a minute to self-reflect, ask expansive questions instead of endlessly auto-advice giving, allow, create, let there be a pregnant, or power pause, as I call it, in a conversation. You don't always have to have the answers. Allow others space to step up, to share their breakthrough thoughts and ideas. Because when we allow there to be more space for others, we are less um, dominating, but we're also, this is what good leadership is, right? It can't just be about you, right? We don't want eight people outside of our door. We want to have trained them to think enough on their own that their existence makes your life and your job easier, better, more satisfying, more fun, more inspired.
0: Let's end on this very practical issue I think a lot of leaders face. I don't think it's a a statement of opinion that one of the most important roles a leader plays is, in fact, offering feedback to others on their performance on their competence on their blind spots this is a huge gift yep. that selfless gift that leaders give to others offering feedback on their blind spots it allows yep. you to break patterns of bad behavior it allows you to help people see what it's like to work with them and for them and can really be a you can be a transition figure in someone's life if done with equal parts courage and consideration diplomacy
1: mm-hmm.
0: but i also think you can get into a habit, to quote you, of auto-responding and always being in feedback mode. And you have some great practical tips for leaders, for that matter, humans, on how, to, on how to not be always impulsively oriented towards providing feedback. Give us some ideas on how we can still play that crucial role of providing feedback, but not having it be so impulsively ingrained in us. You did that just a few minutes ago, but take it a little further.
1: Well, so let's look at what, what is the what is optimal right if we are talking to someone who they work for us right and we are we are their leader let's say it's also important that we ask them what they think so we there will always be space for you to provide feedback what when you start really developing relationships where you 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 deepen the connection with the people who work for you and the people in your life is when you ask expansive questions. So when someone comes to you and are like, what do you think? When, when we're smart and capable, it's very tempting to always just be like, I know exactly what I think, I can't wait to tell you. But I always say to my clients, before you give your opinion, you say, tell me what you think. What does your gut say? Because you have a really good gut instinct a friend comes to me with a problem and they immediately want me to weigh in, I always say, but what what do you know? What do you think? What does your gut tell you? Because the bottom line, especially with personal relationships, (laughs) it is all about what that person thinks they should do, right? Not necessarily what you think they should do. Because the end of the end is not about not ever making mistakes. It's about being self-determined.
0: Terry, one of your celebrity endorsements on the back of your book is from an author that said, this is a crash course in communication integrity with so many clear and comforting techniques. What does communication integrity mean to you?
1: It means exactly like the subtitle of the book says. It means talking true. It means saying what you mean, meaning what you say, following through with your word. But it really means telling the truth. And I think that a lot of us have the disease to please and that it's hard for us to say no or to prioritize the way we feel about something if we know the other person won't like it or if they might be offended by it. And yet having communication integrity means that you learn how to do it diplomatically. And if it's in your personal life, you do it lovingly, but you do it because when we don't do it, we end up in relationships where people do not know who we are, and that is very existentially lonely.
0: Other than get out now, any advice for Stephanie Miller after she reads this book and watches (laughs) our interview?
1: (laughs) That Stephanie Miller has faith in your ability to change behaviors if you want to, to have better boundaries, because you have everything you need right there at your fingertips in my book. So she's a very patient woman, obviously. So just hold on a little longer, Steph. Just let him finish the book and start putting stuff into practice.
0: My biggest angst is that my mother-in-law, who I actually like, has advised all her daughters to have like a flea fund. Like, you know, you gotta have a fund to flee. And I keep saying, my wife, how big is this flea fund? I hope it's like gonna end in our 20th anniversary trip to Bali and not you fleeing me and our sons. (laughs) Terry Cole, (laughs) I like you. You're a class act. Your book is Boundary Boss. The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. I can assure you I will be buying this workbook that comes out. If people have found uh, this riotous, self-disclosing interview with me, hopefully helpful through your advice, where can someone pick up in October the new workbook that's coming out?
1: You can pre-sale start September 1st, so you can probably buy it right now. Um, Amazon.com. You can go to my website, TerryCole.com. Um, And we're gonna be having bonuses that go along with that as well. So feel free to just go to my website, terrycole.com and it'll direct you where to go.
0: Terry, I'm glad we've become friends. Thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me, same.
0: And we'll see you back here, I think next week for a new conversation on leadership.